Brian O'Leary, you're an Irish Jesuit and you have written over many, many years and lectured and taught on St Ignatius, on his constitutions, on his writing, on the man himself. And in one of your essays you've written about a word we mightn't associate with St Ignatius and that is mysticism and Ignatian mysticism. What, what are we talking about here? Mysticism is one of the in-words uh, in our dialogue around spirituality today. To some extent, it can mean whatever one wants it to mean. My former mentor, Joe Veal, for instance, uh, avoided it insofar as he could, and he preferred the term contemplative. And I can see where what he's getting at, that because mysticism was so associated with extraordinary phenomena, which were, of course, there in Ignatius' life. But uh, he wanted to talk about something more down-to-earth, if you like, um, more everyday, and he felt that the term contemplative, uh, having a contemplative approach to life, uh, being able to contemplate and therefore, through contemplation, to discover and acknowledge and own God's presence in the world as, as a whole, not just in some particular part of it. Anyway, we're, we're, we'll use the word mysticism. Um, just to say there, it is a good point because a lot of people would associate mysticism with levitation, visions, and maybe the preserve of a few strange people who had a privileged access to God and therefore feel they weren't part of it. Yet you do quote in your your own essay the famous thing that Karl Rahner said, that the devout Christian of the future would be a mystic or would not be at all. Yes, he was getting at something uh, that was, uh, if you like, accessible to all Christians, a way of living, a way of being aware of oneself in the world as always in contact with God, always in that relationship with God. There is another way of of approaching it which uh, appeals to me, uh, or another word anyway, and that is the word interiority. At the turn of the millennium, uh, Cardinal Martini was interviewed and he was asked, well, in your view, what would be the main message that Ignatius would want to speak to people in the 21st century. And Martini's answer was the importance of interiority. And I think that's just another way of saying what Rahner was saying by talking about Christians being being a mystic, Christian of the future being a mystic, um, or what Joville was talking about when he referred to the contemplative uh, being the call of of Christians today to be more contemplative, so they're all getting at this. I think the same reality uh, using different words, and uh, each word has its own value, and uh, it speaks. Each word will speak maybe to different people and appeal to different people. But it's how, I mean, on a practical level, on a pastoral level, it's how to bring people to that kind of awareness. In another article, I spoke about a contemplative stance. What is it to have a contemplative stance as you go through life? And that contemplative stance will embrace both God and other people and the cosmos and everything. (laughs) 
um, and that it all becomes, inter, first of all, interrelated. You begin to see that these are not totally distinct uh, areas uh, of awareness, but that something is holding them together, and that something is that mystery or reality that we call God. And so I contemplate God in other people, uh, but I do it by contemplating other people first. <laughs> I have to, I have to have that uh, attitude of of respect and appreciation and love of the other, and in that, then I will intuit God's presence. It's not that I will find God as you know, somebody extra to what I'm, <laughs> what I'm contemplating, but I intuit God as part of all of that part of his own creation, really. And Ignatius um, has that in the writings, is it in the contemplation section? The contemplation mm. to attain love, love in the exercise, I suppose, is the most explicit uh, place where he deals with this, where he invites the person first to be appreciative of the gifts that God has given. But he also suggests that the ultimate gift that God has given to me is God himself. You know, that he, if you like, he starts by giving me life and giving me a family and then giving the material means that support life and all the talents and the gifts that I have. Uh, but that in and through all of that, he's giving himself or he's trying to give himself to me if, if I can be sensitive enough and open enough to receive that gift. Then he moves on to talk about God being in the world, um, living in it, abiding in it, to use that beautiful uh, older English way of talking, abide with me, and God abides in me and I abide in God, and all, all of that that we find in John's Gospel. And then he moves from that to suggesting that the presence that we're talking about here, God being in, God abiding in, God living in us and in the world, is not a passive or static dwelling. It's actually a very active dwelling. God is active in all of this. So active in his creation, active in other people, active in myself, and all the time moving us forward to something that ultimately is union with God. So that's a very mystical part of, of this. And then the, then he also suggests, this is more esoteric and very difficult to grasp there, that all that is good in us and in the world is a participation in the goodness that is in God. So that's the general approach that sums up an awful lot of what Ignatius has led a person through in the earlier parts of the exercises. He suggests also that in the main body of the exercises we see that in, in the person of Christ, that Christ is one who receives the gifts of God in himself as a person, but he's also the ultimate gift of God. It's the way God gives himself to the world by giving us Christ. And then he shows that by living in us, the word becoming flesh and dwelling in us, dwelling among us, 
uh, God is showing not only that he is present, but that he is active because Jesus goes about doing good and healing and preaching and all of that. And that's interesting in, in the spiritual exercises, which I just wanted to talk about because, you see, when we talk about interiority and you're saying in modern day mysticism is a buzzword and the way it's expressing itself perhaps is in a contemplative stance where people are taking up meditation or contemplative mm-hmm. ways of um, you know, the John Main school or where it's Ignatius trying to do the same thing in the sense of get people to an awareness of their connection with God and with all things through the spiritual exercises that he wrote for mm. people to, here's how you do this. As you said, it's not, it's all very well to have the theory of what we need to be a mystic, but how do we mm. do that? So these four weeks that people can be guided through different stages of prayer and of contemplation and reflection, mm. would you say that's his way of, of trying to help us become the mystic, to attain that interiority that we so often don't have or know how to do in modern day and mm. probably in Ignatius' day as well? That's why he had to write them. Yes, I've sometimes said that the, what marks off uh, Ignatius from other mystics, other spiritual leaders, and that is is his gift of pedagogy, that he's an excellent pedagogue. Many of the other mystics, you can read about them, they can even reveal some of their own mystical experiences, but they don't set out to say how one can reach that. You know, they offer encouragement, yes, John of the Cross, to some extent, does it, um, but it's in a very complicated way. Uh, the stages of development and the, the map that he drew of Mount Carmel and so on. But in the exercise, Ignatius uh, be- becomes the pedagogue and leads the exertion through different exercises, which will correspond to different stages of development and of self-awareness and of awareness of God and of insertion into the gospel through getting to know Christ and then the values that they absorb from the gospel and from Christ, all of it leading to becoming someone who can live more contemplatively in the world and express the values of the gospel in his or her own life and whatever calling he or she may have in, in the world. And I think interesting in that is you, you mentioned about the that it's active, you know, that mm. it, it results in action and in, in I think, of the first or second week that Ignatius in the exercises, when he invites the person to reflect on gospel scenes, a, a lot of them have to do with teaching, Christ teaching yeah. or going or doing things so that that Ignatian thing of the Jesuits even being contemplatives in action is very important. Yes, the whole dynamic of the exercise is meant to lead to an active presence in the world, an active commitment to live gospel values and to spread gospel values in in the world. Nadal, who was one of the most relied interpreters of of Ignatius by the saint himself, he offers a triad for his interpretation, I suppose, of spirituality. And uh, it goes, spiritu corde practice, in the spirit, from the heart, and leading to action. And that's a very good summary, if you like, of what Ignatius was doing too, again, uh, using different words, 
Um, but in the spirit, acknowledging that the spirit is the main actor, that the main person who is influencing and encouraging and driving and, and uh, stimulating the person, uh, it has to be from the heart because otherwise uh, it's not fully human, there are response. Uh, it can be cerebral, intellectual, but it must be lived from the heart. But thirdly, then, it must, all of that leads into action. The spirit, see, the spirit drives us, you know, like the spirit driving Jesus into the desert. Uh, but he also drove him out of the desert, in a sense, and back into Capernaum. Uh, where he made that famous uh, series of statements in the in the synagogue, announcing that what he was sent to do to bring good news to the poor, etc., to free the captives, you know, all of that. So yes, I mean, in one way, once you start talking about it, it's it's quite complex what Ignatius is doing. But the complexity has to be lived rather than to be worked out again in theory. Yeah. You know, that, uh, and that's why to understand Ignatian spirituality, you really have to make the exercises in some form yeah. uh, rather than just read books of Ignatian spirituality. Well, exactly, because everything is about the person themselves. Mm. Something happens within that is irrevocable, that, and somehow you own what you believe or you own your faith or your Christianity in a way that's totally different. It's not just something that has been handed down that mm. you've learned off by rote. And it's and that's interesting, I think, for today, because very many people today are not exposed to the way we say older people like myself were, were at least brought up in the faith, even if you weren't having an affective experience or if you were and didn't recognise it, you at least had something to hold on to. Nowadays, the quest is how to start from nowhere, nearly, yes. you know. And um, But Ignatius has things to say to that as well. Well, at least he will bring the person to self-knowledge and anybody can be brought to self-knowledge and uh, whether they're a believer or not. And, and that's one entry point, uh, in speaking with somebody who isn't a believer but who is kind of open and is asking questions. We often quote that statement attributed to Socrates by, by Plato that the unexamined life is not worth living. And that can be a starting point for everybody because everybody is at some level interested in their own life and, <laughs> and what what makes them tick and what, they're, uh, what drives them, what prevents them from ending their lives sometimes, you know. Uh, so what drives a person? And uh, But from that then, um, I use the phrase that the prayerless life is not worth living. And can one bring a person, if one is kind of ministering to a person or helping a person, can one bring... Uh, that person from the first, accepting the first statement that the unexamined life is not worth living, to the second statement, the life without prayer is not worth living. Now, that's a very long journey in a way, but it's another way of describing uh, what that progress would be like. And of course, the mystics, I mean, that that if, if you're in a broad reading of mystical writings, mm. one of the things that is stressed is hugely important is that self-knowledge, the knowing thyself and becoming aware. And probably that in the hope when one does that in a really open way, 
you then realise, as you began with the call of the other as well, mm. and the, the call of the other then leads to more reflection on um, a broader sense of of who we are, why we are, and that pulls you out into something more transcendent. Yes, with young people especially, I suppose we be, we tend to start with, say, social involvement um, projects uh, that will be of help to others, and and that stimulates that the men for men and women for others kind of uh, theory. Um, it puts that into practice, and the hope is then that in that once they begin reflecting on their experience of being available to others and of working for others, that somehow something transcendent will emerge. That you know this is this is beyond. You know what is strictly necessary. So why am I doing this? Uh, what's calling me out of myself to sacrifice my time, my, give my energy to somebody else, rather than to be doing it for myself all the time? And in that, perhaps the beginnings of an awareness that there is a transcendent being, there is a God, there is a spirit uh, at work, that is not the spirit of the world or the spirit of our contemporary culture. It's something beyond that again. And I'm struck listening to you about the importance of, if we are going to do that, and if self-knowledge and interiority or awareness or contemplative way stance in the world, that we do need help with that. I mean, Ignatius was aware of that, that it's not just the exercises, but there's a companion to to accompany you through the exercises to help you make sense of what you're experiencing. That is really lacking today, apart from if people go and find a spiritual director or a spiritual accompanier or an anamkara. But I'm thinking of the way we've often experienced our faith. It's given to you without much help to make sense of what's happening. So that that line I used earlier of T.S. Eliot, we had the experience, we missed the meaning. Mm -hmm. That there are a lot of people who are acting in good faith and praying and living their lives, but they're perhaps just not aware because there's nobody to be like a spiritual midwife to help them see that what they're actually experiencing is an experience of God. I think that's very true of a more traditional generation, if you like, who, who pray vocally, maybe with the rosary or other devotions. All that they're doing is good. It's all leading them into union with God. But in a way they're losing out on something and it's something to do with an awareness of what is actually happening when they pray an awareness of how god does communicate with them i think you're perfectly right you know that one does need help one needs somebody to accompany you and to begin i suppose by raising questions you know that the person may never have thought of before and opening up possibilities and widening the horizon. To a large extent, that's what spiritual direction is about. I know there are other very powerful metaphors like the one of the midwives that you quoted, but it's a question of widening horizons, that if you're with a person as an accompanier or a director, say for a year or two years, at the end of it, it's good to ask oneself, but has this person's horizon been broadened as well as has their prayer deepened but have the wider vision and a a vision that is more energizing for them but we are i mean no no man is an island as john dunn said you know we we do need each other uh, in this area as in every other area of life 
you mentioned there about Ignatius did have some profound experiences in his life that really changed him and, and that he changed in his experience and in his relationship with God and understanding of God. But he was always careful because he, he tended to go to extremes sometimes as well, like in his response. So you know, I'm thinking of the time when he had his cardinal experience in the, the, at the river and yet he then went into an extreme mode of penance and um, scruples and all sorts of things that people can go to the other extremes and excess. So he knew about that as well. And that's part of the wisdom that he brings, a balanced mysticism, <laughs> in, yeah. in a sense, an ordinary mysticism. Well, we all teach out of our own experience as well as our own learning. And uh, nobody teaches who hasn't experienced failure or doubt or, uh, in extreme case, scruples and that. So, yes, he is calling on all of that. And uh, it also allows him to, to be very firm that everything is gift, you know, that left to ourselves, well, that's where we would remain, you know, scrupulous or doubtful or sceptical or agnostic or whatever. Uh, th- that's how we would be, if not really sinful as well. <laughs> but um, he, he acknowledges, yes, the hum- this, I mean, when he talks in the exercise of the human person as a composite being, you know, that we're, we're not simple, we're, we're, we're very complex. But it's an awareness of that that allows him then to be a good pedagogue and to accept uh, everybody where they're at, no matter how down in the dumps they may be or how spiritually insensitive they may be, and to gradually bring them to more and more self-awareness leading to an awareness of God. And that's what he's doing, really, in the exercises and, and elsewhere, too. I mean, in many ways, he was a psychologist long before the term was invented, hundreds of years before it became a, a science. Yes, he's, he's a very good practical psychologist, anyway, and I think that that is recognised, you know, by even professional psychologists that they'll see the wisdom that's there. Some of it was purely his own, I would think, because it comes from his own unique experience of life. But he was also aware of the wisdom of the Christian tradition on spirituality and on prayer, going back to the, the Desert Fathers and Mothers. All of that was part of him and... Perhaps we sometimes forget that uh, that history that that he drew on, and uh, it's. But more recently, I think there has been a greater appreciation of how much he, in his turn, was influenced by the writings of other mystics and other theologians before him. That it's not taking away from his own unique mystical experiences, like the one at Cardinaire that you referred to. Uh, or Manresa in general, but that um, it all comes together. You know, it all comes together. I mean, he did spend, uh, what was it, nine years, I think, at the University of Paris, you know, studying. He, he wasn't just a, a, a simple mystic, if you like. You know, he was a mystic who, who came uh, to God with his very complex um, personality, with his uh, very troublesome past, if you like, from his time before his conversion and even after his conversion. But he is saying, well, you know, no one is outside the grace of God, you know, no matter, come whatever way you are and uh, I will accompany you. 
you as you find your God. And just to conclude, we today is putted to be the, the birthday of St. Ignatius of Loyola and a new book has just come out. You've been reading it. It's called Ignatius of Loyola by, you have it there. It's by Pierre, Pierre M. Monet. Yeah. Um, the subtitle is important, Legend and Reality, because he does set out quite explicitly to debunk the myth, the, the legends that have grown up around him, and uh, try to get us to look more closely at, at the reality as, as, we, as far as we can discover it anyway in the writings of Ignatius himself and his contemporaries and other historical writers. It's not very long, just something over 140 pages or something. It's an interesting read, particularly for those who already know something of Ignatius and want to probe a bit more, more deeply and to make the distinction really between the legend and the reality. Perhaps I wouldn't give it to somebody who knows nothing of Ignatius as, as a first book. I think I would point them more to maybe Mary Purcell's The First Jesuit or Philip Caraman, Ignatius of Loyola, or Brian Grogan's um, Alone and on Foot. They're more accessible, if you like. They're not dealing with the controversies that can arise. It's interesting because just even listening in our conversation that he was a very complex man and he understood complex people. Yes. I mean, I've been reflecting in recent weeks actually around uh, what I know of Ignatius and I would say I know very little that I can be certain of. I know an awful lot of what might have been or certain interpretations, but the real Ignatius is very elusive. 